This is Anne-Marie Lewis, and you are listening to We Are Rivers, conversations about the rivers that connect us, brought to you by American Rivers. We Are Rivers is now available on both iTunes and Stitcher. Subscribe to stay up to date with new episodes. And if you find We Are Rivers educational, interesting, or inspiring, please take a moment to rate and comment. This helps others discover this series, too. We appreciate your support. Today, we will discuss Glen Canyon Dam, an infamous synthetic structure that staunches the Colorado River 15 miles before it flows into the Grand Canyon. Standing over two times the height of the Statue of Liberty, it holds back one of the largest reservoirs on the planet, Lake Powell, which, when at full capacity, extends 186 miles up the bed of the Colorado River, can hold in excess of 9 trillion gallons, and touches 1,900 miles of shore longer than the coastline from Seattle to San Diego. The dam is one of the most sensitive topics in the water conservation river running community. Many believe it never should have been constructed, but now that it does exist, it is very much written into the framework of the West's water management. And this is why the debate of whether or not to restore a free-flowing river through Glen Canyon is more complicated than one could at first assume. In this podcast, We Are Rivers seeks to understand the dam's purpose, its impact on the Grand Canyon, and the unsure prospect of restoring a world underwater. On June 22nd, I came out from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, bidding my 2017 river adventure farewell. On the canyon's south rim, I spent a night at the historic El Tovar Hotel, erected in 1905, and in the early morning light of the 23rd, I walked out to the rim, positioned myself on a ledge with legs slung above open air, and stared out across the canyon's expansive maze that had previously concealed me. The river was out of sight, hidden by the terraces of stacked cliff faces running far beneath Earth's surface, but the curves and cliffs of the rocks that stretched across my field of vision told the story of the river. And for this reason, I felt the ever-present, timeless power water has over the arid and crumbled landscapes of the West. But, knowing what stands just upstream of the canyon, I couldn't help but feel disillusioned and angry as I stared at the terraced rocks descending like an inverted wedding cake into the earth. I knew that despite the ragged and wild landscape of the Grand Canyon, the river that runs through it is no longer free. Its flows are not its own, it pulsates with a synthetic beat, an artificial tide created by a powerful force upstream, Glen Canyon Dam. The dam exists at the entrance of the canyon, 15 miles upstream of Lee's Ferry, the gateway to the canyon. And since the dam's construction in 1963, the Colorado River's temperature, volume, and composition have been fundamentally altered. From reading The Emerald Mile, authored by renowned journalist Kevin Fidarko, while staring down into the canyon from the iconic South Rim, I knew that, quote, by 1980, more than 75,000 dams had been erected in our country's 3,000-plus waterways, roughly one dam for every 48 hours that had passed since the summer of 1540, end quote. And that, in the 1950s and 60s, the Bureau of Reclamation would, quote, construct 19 large dams and reservoirs along the Colorado and its tributaries. This epic sequence of projects would complete the river's transformation from the wild and savage beast explored by John Wesley Powell into something that resembled a municipal waterwork system. It would make the Colorado the first river to come under almost total human control. 
Nothing happened on the river that had not been carefully planned, reviewed, and approved. End quote. And so, as I sat on the edge of the maze I had just emerged from, I knew that every drop of the Colorado River flowing downstream of the dam is dependent on a switch in a control room etched into the face of the Glen Canyon Dam. And I wondered, has humankind dominated this river? Glen Canyon Dam was arguably one of the most controversial construction projects in our nation's history. When it was built in 1956, our country didn't have any environmental legislation. The Environmental Protection Agency didn't exist. There was no National Environmental Policy Act, so there was no public review to get public input. And basically, it was done before the impacts of that dam could be measured. So nobody really knew what was being lost. And because of that, it was just really a huge tragedy. This is Eric Balkin. Growing up in Salt Lake City, Utah, Eric has a strong connection to the mountains and arid landscapes of the West that traces back to his childhood. Today, he works to give back to the lands that drive his passions and sense of place. Eric is the executive director of Glen Canyon Institute, whose mission, in the words of Eric, is to, quote, restore a free-flowing Colorado River through Glen Canyon and Grand Canyon. Upstream of the Glen Canyon Dam, there once existed a canyon whose beauty was said to surpass and transcend the beauty of the Grand Canyon itself. I'm talking about Glen Canyon, that that gorgeous canyon above the Glen Canyon Dam where the Colorado River flowed across the landscape in a serpentine manner. This is Kevin Fedarko, referenced many times throughout this podcast, reading from his critically acclaimed best-selling book, The Emerald Mile. Kevin is an award-winning journalist who has a noteworthy ability to speak and write with an unparalleled eloquence. Of many topics, his book most notably examines the conflicting opinions surrounding Glen Canyon Dam's existence. The people who were fortunate enough to have seen and spent time inside that landscape spoke of it in almost religious terms, and that whole landscape is now a lost world, a lost world that has been buried in these 500 feet of water. Glen Canyon was considered to be one of the most magical places on the planet. It was a sacred place for over 20 Native American tribes. River runners revered it because it was one of the most incredible stretches of river you could ever run. It was home to 125 side canyons. It was basically at the confluence of five of the most majestic rivers in the West. The Green, the Colorado, the San Juan, the Dirty Devil, and the Escalante River is all drained into Glen Canyon. And if you think about the, the stretch of it, when Lake Powell was full, it inundated 186 miles of that canyon. And that's a lot of river to lose with one dam. And that's the reason why Glen, in the eyes of many environmentalists and conservationists, represents a sin for which it is almost impossible to atone. In light of the destruction of Glen Canyon and the excessive damming of the Colorado from its source to where the river's trickling flows fall a hundred miles short of reaching the Sea of Cortez, I can't help but further press the uncomfortable question, has humankind dominated this river? This question has been in my mind since the second minute of being on the river just after pushing off from Lee's Ferry, 15 miles below Glen Canyon Dam. In this moment, I leaned over the edge of my raft to make sure I was seeing correctly. I could see to the bottom of the river. The water was crystal clear. 
a shocking sight when considering the fact that the Colorado used to be referred to as the Red River because of the thick, muddied sediment load it carried. At least eight feet down, I spotted a trout deprived of its secrecy. The thought of what hides in the depths just below the surface loses its appealing mystery in clear water. No sediment actually makes it through the dam because the intakes are too high off the ground for any sediment to get through. So after the dam was built, the Grand Canyon really became a sediment-starved river. So where there was once warm, silty water that flowed through the canyon, it's cold and clear water. It is almost impossible to understate how unnatural today's clear and cold Colorado River is. It is best understood when thinking about how silt-laden the Colorado was before the dam. To capture this perspective, here is Kevin reading an excerpt from the Emerald Mile. Prior to 1963, the year that the Glen Canyon Dam was finished, the Colorado transported an average of nearly half a million tons of sand and silt through the Grand Canyon every 24 hours. Its record, set in 1927, was more than 27 million tons of sand and silt in a single day. Among a handful of settlers who lived within the canyon country during the 19th century, it was said that the river was, quote, too thick to drink, too thin to plow. Others joked that on windy days, dust could be seen blowing off the water's surface. This was no laughing matter, however, to the Mormon sheep herders who attempted to ford their flocks at Reese Ferry and found themselves standing helplessly as the animals sank beneath the surface, pinned down by the weight of the sediment trapped in their wool. As expressed by Eric and Kevin, the Colorado is fundamentally altered in its sediment load, and the effect this has had on the ecology of the Grand Canyon has been dramatic. The ecosystem of the Grand Canyon has been absolutely devastated from the effects of Glen Canyon Dam. Before the dam, the water that flowed through the Grand Canyon was warm, silty water uh, that provided a lot of nutrients to the wildlife, and it built up beaches that benefited the riparian habitat. And really because of Glen Canyon Dam and the changes it made to the river, we now have four endangered fish species on the Colorado River. Sinjin Eberly, Director of Communication at American Rivers, further elaborates on this. The effects of the sediment not going through the dam have a direct impact on many of the endangered fish in the river, especially the humpback chub. Those fish need that sediment in order to build their nests, build their reds, and lay their eggs and spawn. And that now is disappearing from the major river corridor. The Glen Canyon Dam managed to completely destroy one landscape and profoundly impact a second one. The riparian ecosystem at the bottom of the Grand Canyon has been absolutely transformed in primarily negative ways by the Glen Canyon Dam. If you recall from this podcast's first episode, The Value of Rivers, a riparian ecosystem encompasses the land and vegetation surrounding a river. The vast majority of animals spend all or most of their lives in or near a riparian zone of necessity. In some parts of the canyon, the loss in sediment has completely destroyed the riparian zone. Combined with the fact that there is no new sediment being deposited to form beaches, the unsaturated flows pick up sediment and carry it off from beaches, contributing to the loss of riparian habitats. And so what that means is is that as that really clean water flows into the Grand Canyon, it wants to pick up sediment from the bottom of the Grand Canyon, from the bottom of the Colorado River, you know, downstream. And so what's happened is, is it has had an amazing erosive effect. It has picked up that sediment 
and basically eroded many of the beaches and sandy areas of the Grand Canyon and shot all that sediment farther downstream, eventually into Lake Mead. Arguably, the most jarring aspect of the dam within the Grand Canyon is that the river has fluctuations, similar to tides. Over 100 miles downstream of the dam itself, its synthetic control is still written in the flows of the river. This is because the river's flow fluctuations are dependent on the amount of water the dam releases, which is dependent on energy demands. The power generation process of a hydropower dam can be turned off and on almost instantly as water is released into the turbines. This generated power is known as peaking power because it can immediately be sent off to the power grid based on the peaking demands of civilization. This is something that typically happens at the beginning of the workday in very large cities such as, say, Phoenix or Tucson in the southwest. And so it's when people are getting into their offices when air conditions are being turned on that the demand for power increases and hydroelectric power plants are called upon to supply electricity into the grid system for that. And so what that means is that the engineers who are in charge of a dam like the Glen Canyon Dam they are usually opening their penstocks and sending water into their power plants in the morning, and then they're backing off that process in the evening. And one of the consequences of this, which is rather unusual, is that the river level below a large hydroelectric dam actually fluctuates. You will find inside the Grand Canyon that the level of the river, the Colorado River, downstream of the Glen Canyon Dam, increases during the day and drops at night. And what this does is it creates what is, in effect, a quasi-marine environment inside of a riparian desert ecosystem. You literally have a tide that is moving up during the day and falling down at night. It's completely artificial. It's linked directly to the needs and demands of human beings in faraway cities. And it results in a very dynamic riparian ecosystem. So, within a 24-hour cycle, there are varying levels in energy demand. When there is a spike in demand, the water released through the turbines increases and water levels rise. When there is a decline in demand, the water released through the turbines decreases and the water levels decline. The result is that Glen Canyon Dam is ever-present within the canyon. Even over 100 miles deep in the wilderness in any given direction, it's impossible to forget. But let's take a step back from Glen Canyon Dam for a moment and discuss what the purpose of dams are in general. They are certainly not devoid of purpose. They control flooding and generate hydropower. Dams are acts of engineering to control rivers in the form of prevention of flooding, but also to impose another kind of control over them, which is to harness the kinetic energy contained within them and transform that energy into electricity, which can be used by human beings. So dams are about the human effort to and the human dream of controlling and harnessing the raw power of nature. And perhaps the most important reason for western dams is their ability to capture spring snowmelt. Western rivers are primarily fed by snowmelt, meaning that in the spring months, western rivers surge. After the snowmelt season, flows diminish. Dams capture water during the spring surge flows and allow there to be enough water to irrigate crops and run through millions of faucets in the dry summer months. The primary reason Glen Canyon Dam, in particular, was built relates to episode two of this podcast series, Law of the River, in which We Are Rivers explores the Colorado Compact. One of the reasons Glen Canyon Dam was built was to buffer the upper basin's compact obligations to the lower basin. 
Glen Canyon Dam was built primarily for one reason, which is to serve as a storage basin for the upper Colorado River. Uh, we're talking about the, the states in the upper Colorado who are responsible for delivering a certain number of acre feet to the Colorado River users downstream each and every year. And it is the reservoir behind the Glen Canyon Dam uh, that enables the upper basin states to guarantee those water deliveries which are mandated by law. And that guarantee serves as the kind of platform and the anchor upon which all water developments in the upper basin states are subsequently built. So it's really hard to kind of overstate the importance of the Glen Canyon Dam and Lake Powell in terms of the accounting, the water accounting that's necessary for the upper basin states. But in light of what we know today and how we collectively value wild rivers, looking back at the justifications for building Glen Canyon Dam may not be an acceptable means to the ends. The idea of damming Glen Canyon today would just be laughable. Or like putting a dam in the Grand Canyon, people would just laugh at your face because we know the value of these rivers systems and these canyons. They're beyond just a, a storage tank or a, a power plant. They have value that goes way deeper than that, something that you can't put a price tag on. And for me, Glen Canyon Dam is not worth the benefits of it. It sacrificed one of the most amazing canyons in the world. It devastated the ecosystem of the Colorado River. And given the realities of our new hydrology and climate change, um, we could actually put that water downstream. It is fair to say that most conservationists today look back at the construction of Glen Canyon Dam and deeply regret it. And for this reason, many wish to see the river and the canyon restored. However, now that the dam exists, simply removing Glen Canyon Dam and draining Lake Powell is much more multifaceted than one would assume. It is a complicated, daunting, complex, and delicate issue. Yet, the fact that the water levels of Lake Powell and Lake Mead are so low has led to an interesting proposal put forth by Eric's organization, Glen Canyon Institute, called Fill Mead First. Lake Mead is the largest reservoir on the Colorado River, contained by Hoover Dam, over 300 miles downstream of Glen Canyon. Fill Mead First is a proposal by the Glen Canyon Institute, a small conservation organization in Salt Lake City, that would basically advocate for in stages, draining down Lake Powell and, and basically moving the water that is currently stored in Lake Powell down to Lake Mead and storing the entire body of both Lake Mead and Lake Powell in Lake Mead. But how does this make sense? How can the water behind two dams be combined in one? Due to drought and climate change, the water stored behind both dams can be contained in one. You know, we're facing a huge crisis with supply and demand on the Colorado River. You could currently completely drain Lake Powell into Lake Mead, and it still wouldn't fill Lake Mead up. And when these dams were built, it was never imagined that the water levels would ever get that low. Those dams were built in an era of excess water, and that era is, is over. So the term fill mead first implies that you cannot fill both reservoirs, right? Fill mead first, fill Powell second. Uh, climate projections show that it's likely that these reservoirs will never fill again. So fill mead first is really restoring Glen Canyon in the context of the modern Colorado River hydrology. 
it is important to stress that filming first does not advocate removing the dam, rather restoring a free-flowing river by expanding the diversion tunnels around the dam. The idea is to keep the infrastructure of the dam in place, create a free-flowing bypass around it, and drain Lake Powell to a level where Glen Canyon can come back to life. Amidst the fiery passions of many environmentalists yearning to see Glen Canyon come back to life, Glen Canyon Institute's main goal is to look into the science of why removing Lake Powell makes sense. One of the biggest arguments is that combining the lakes would conserve water because less surface area means less evaporation. So there was always this this passion for draining Lake Powell. And really what we tried to do when we began as an organization 21 years ago was to take that passion and kind of push it in a way that there was actually a logical reason to drain Lake Powell and to see Glen Canyon come back. That was always our our mission was to, you know, get the best minds together, try to try to find a scientific foundation for actually doing it. In terms of evaporation, because Lake Powell is so big, the idea is that you would save a lot of water from not being evaporated off this giant lake in the middle of the desert if you combine the two lakes. But Sinjin went on to explain. There's been some studies done over the past few decades that recently have been synthesized, have been reanalyzed and put together by Professor Jack Schmidt at Utah State University. So what Dr. Schmidt did is went back through a lot of the research and looked at, okay, if this were to happen, how much water would actually be saved if we did this? And when you consider the science behind evaporation in a really large reservoir, which is Lake Powell. Still, if Lake Powell were drawn down to Deadpool, the reservoir would still be about 80 to 100 miles long. So it's still a really big reservoir, even if it's drawn down to a much smaller volume. So if it were drawn down to Deadpool, it still would extend, you know, 75 or 80 miles. That would still evaporate a lot of water. But regardless of the potential draining Lake Powell has in water conservation, the fact of the matter still is that there just simply isn't enough water to fill both Powell and Mead. You know, as climate change started to take its toll on the river and Glen Canyon started to reemerge and Lake Powell lowered in the 2000s, it added a whole new element of this argument. So Bill Mead First is really restoring Glen Canyon in the context of the Colorado River we know today, which has reduced flows and can't fill up both reservoirs. So if Glen Canyon can be brought back to life by draining Powell, isn't this reason enough, irrespective of how much water could potentially be saved, to drain Powell? I mean, let's not forget, Glen Canyon is an amazing, nearly 200-mile-long, spectacular canyon that was buried by this reservoir. And so there's also the philosophical desire to restore that canyon. You know, if Glen Canyon Dam was one of the biggest environmental mistakes in our country's history, and if it inundated one of the most amazing canyons on the planet, and it's this big mistake, why don't we move that water downstream now that our system can't sustain two big reservoirs? Right now, you could completely drain Lake Powell down to Deadpool, and it still wouldn't fill up Lake Mead. So right now you can fit all that water in one reservoir. And I fully appreciate that that is an important part of this conversation. Getting Glen Canyon back is certainly something that many people would like to see happen. 
But filmmade first is more complex than simply restoring Glen Canyon. Draining Lake Powell would have huge, nightmarish political ramifications. It is feasible to put that water in Lake Mead, but it raises a really big and prickly question about the legality or the political reality of doing it. The legal hurdles are practically boundless and could very well prevent Filmed First from manifesting past a nostalgic dream. One political block is the Colorado River Compact. The upper basin is required by law by, under the compact to deliver 75 million acre feet over a 10-year rolling average to the lower basin and also contribute a little bit to Mexico every year. So what that works out to be is about 8.23 million acre feet per year has to glide past Lee's Ferry on a 10-year rolling average. So currently, the Colorado River Compact's dividing line is at Lee's Ferry about 16 miles downstream from Glen Canyon Dam. So that gauging station is where the upper basin's water contribution to the lower basin is measured. This raises a key question. Since draining Lake Powell would require re-examining where and how the water flowing from the upper basin is measured, would it even be legal to store Powell's water in Lake Mead under the Colorado River Compact? From a legal standpoint, it would be legal under the compact to fill Lake Mead first and store upper basin water in Lake Mead. There was a, an article that was written, that was published on that in a law journal by Larry McDonald, who's a leading law expert on Colorado River. And he pretty much asked that question. Is it legal under the Colorado River Compact or the law of the river to, to fill Lake Mead first? And there isn't anything in there that said you can't do it. It would just require a change in the operating guidelines. Theoretically, there could be an agreement between the upper basin and lower basin to store the water all in Mead. That is, that is theoretically possible. But the issues presented by the Colorado Compact don't end here. If the upper basin is ever compromised in its ability to send enough water down to the lower basin in a drought, the water stored in Lake Powell is supposed to compensate for the lack of water. Again, this was the original purpose of Lake Powell. What if there was a mega upper basin drought and we couldn't send 7 million acre feet? We couldn't send 6 million acre feet down through Lee's Ferry on a 10-year rolling average we wouldn't have the capacity to deal with that. And some people have speculated that if Lake Powell were to go away, we would have to build at least three or four more reservoirs in the upper basin. Think about damming the Yampa, damming the Animus, potentially another dam on the main stem Colorado, potentially another dam on the green. Nobody is saying they want that and nobody is saying that they would like to trade Glen Canyon for four new dams on the upper basin, but this is what we mean by needing to stabilize the system. We got to make the system reliable enough that at some point in the future, if Glen Canyon is to be decommissioned, we don't have to build new storage. I asked Eric what he thought about this point of Sinjins. He responded, I do not buy that argument at all, and here's why. Between Lake Powell and Lake Mead, the capacity is built up less than 50%. So the the problem isn't that we have a lack of capacity. The problem is that we have lack of water. So the idea that we would need to build more dams to meet the storage capacity is ludicrous because Lake Powell would only be drained in a situation where there wasn't enough water to fill up both reservoirs. The only scenario in which Bill Mead First would ever happen is if there wasn't enough water to keep them both reasonably full. 
Um, and our argument with keeping the dam there, of course, as a backup, would be that if, if against all odds, if the impacts of climate change shift and we see greater flows in the river, despite a growing population and increased water use, if all of those trends that are bringing down river flows somehow change and Lake Powell needs to be used as a backup, then so be it. But it would never amount to building more dams on rivers upstream. I just don't buy that argument at all. Regardless of whether or not draining Lake Powell could lead to the construction of four new dams, the cooperative political battles are still paramount hurdles, even more than the fine-tunings of the Law of the River and the Colorado Compact. Grappling with the feelings and emotions behind the compact and between basins is the true challenge. The political nature of Glen Canyon Dam in regards to the situation between the upper basin and the lower basin, it's very touchy. We don't expect that it could happen overnight. It's a huge operational change. It has huge political ramifications. It would require a lot of coordination between all the states and all the basins. Eric went on to say that in order for the upper basin to ever store its water in Lake Mead, it would need to be incentivized and assured that the water technically still belongs to it. But since a degree of animosity has undeniably existed between the upper and lower basin, could negotiations surrounding Filmed First further embitter the relationship between the upper and lower basin? The states and basins are just beginning to cooperate more effectively, as discussed in Law of the River, our second episode. So, would focusing on efforts in restoring Glen Canyon test this cooperation to a fatal point, possibly creating new wounds and toppling the progress that is currently being made in stabilizing water management? Sinjin is concerned about exactly this. Certainly right now, upper basin and lower basin relations are in pretty good shape. There's a lot of conversation going on between the upper basin and lower basin about how to save more water make our resources more flexible and try to think about this in a way that we're all in this together. Whether you live in Colorado or California, we're all in this together. And so if we started breaking open the compact in order to store all of the water that the upper basin sends down to Lake Mead, it would certainly add a layer of tension and potentially back to a time of conflict that would not be beneficial to the river or anyone in the Colorado Basin because it could get acrimonious pretty quick. So I think the possibility of introducing new tension through trying to make a proposal like this happen when the basins are not yet stabilized to the point where each basin is in pretty good shape in terms of conservation, living within their means, et cetera, it could get really ugly really fast. And so we have to get a handle on conservation and water flexibility first and make it so that the upper basin and the lower basin are living within their means. So then we can start thinking about, is there an opportunity to restore Glen Canyon? But why are filming first and stabilizing the basin mutually exclusive? Aside from conflicting ideologies and contention potentially hindering upper-lower basin relations, why can't they happen simultaneously? Stabilizing the system in some ways is a big enough task that it's going to take everything we can do to get that done without the distraction of removing Glen Canyon Dam. There's a lot of people who really want to see Glen Canyon Dam removed and really want to have that river corridor back. And I can appreciate that. And I, you know, quite frankly, I do too. But it isn't feasible at this time because we 
are built into this system that has been around nearly a hundred years that we have to live with today. And so the water managers who are trying to manage these rivers and manage the use of these rivers and the water that they provide have to be able to have all the tools for flexibility that they have today in order to figure out how can we plan for the next 50 or 100 years. And I think it's really, really important that we all band together, conservationists, business interests, agriculture, municipalities together, and let's figure this out so that then we have the opportunity to take something like Glen Canyon Dam and draw it down as the Filming First proposal projects. How contentious the issue is and how much time, money, and political capital a proposition such as filming first would require from the water management community of engineers, biologists, policy buffs, recreators, politicians, etc. Other initiatives in the Colorado River Basin arguably take precedence over filming first because the proposal could run the risk of draining the precious and needed energy being put forth to stabilize the basin in cooperative water conservation initiatives. But to sum up Eric's view, studying filming first and hopefully implementing it is not mutually exclusive with conservation initiatives or collaboration between the basins, although the politics of it are inarguably messy. To sum up Sinjin's view, which represents the official position of American rivers, a cohesive cooperative path towards thinking about whether or not a reservoir should come down makes sense only if the water demands in the system are first systemically balanced. In other words, Water authorities and interests who take water out of the upper and lower basins all have to work towards collaborative mechanisms that increase water conservation before the contentious debates on draining Lake Powell seriously manifest. And those solutions are known, published, and many are being implemented today, such as Colorado committing to a 400,000-acre-foot urban conservation goal. Sinjin argues that if done out of order, emotional and political arguments between towns, basins, and states run the risk of stalling collaborative conservation initiatives. Everyone who lives in the Colorado Basin, from Wyoming, Colorado, New Mexico, any of these states where water is being drawn out of, has a responsibility and an opportunity to use less and to conserve more every day. Then you can start thinking about do we need all of this storage? And then what is the top priority storage to remove? At this point, it is important to step back and acknowledge that this is a very contentious issue with a wide array of ideas. Everyone in this podcast would love to see Glen Canyon Dam removed in an ideal world. This is clear. Rather, their differences come in the practicality and possibility of this demand over other pressing topics, issues, and realities of contemporary society and its relation to rivers. And so the most important thing when discussing Glen Canyon Dam is to maintain open and respectful dialogue to all viewpoints, even fundamentally different ones. The vitality of respect and arguments can't be stressed enough, and perhaps no one exemplifies this better than Kevin Fodarko, who, in writing The Emerald Mile, tried to equally represent the viewpoints of both the engineers and managers of Glen, who love the dam and the reservoir, and those river runners and conservationists who couldn't detest it more. In the book, Kevin tells a story of contention between Edward Abbey, a fiery environmentalist, and Tom Gamble, the former manager of Glen Canyon Dam. To sum up, Gamble, quote, tried to engage in dialogue with members of the conservation community in the hopes of offering them another perspective. 
When he received angry letters or phone calls, he wrote long and polite responses, patiently explaining the benefits of clean hydropower. None of those letters was answered. He attended a River Runners conference in Flagstaff where he was publicly embarrassed in front of his wife by a singer who performed a song that ridiculed him in the Bureau of Reclamation. Rebuffed at every turn, Gamble was eventually forced to conclude that these were people who had no interest in exposing themselves to information that might complicate or add nuance to the picture they had drawn for themselves. His patience was now gone. From what he'd seen and heard, it was clear to him that the environmental community was willfully blind and self-deluded." End quote. With this excerpt in mind, I asked Kevin what level of importance he thinks there is to open and respectful communication between people holding different ideologies. The importance of those two things, respect and open-mindedness, is, is absolutely paramount. Without that, it's impossible to have any kind of communication, any sort of discussion, and what tends to flow directly from that is a, a tendency on either side, a movement towards the extremes. And with that movement comes a tendency to demonize those on the other side of the fence. And although that act of demonization can often feel incredibly satisfying at a personal level because it is fused with and in many instances fueled by a sense of self-righteous anger, ultimately I think it's unproductive. Ultimately it results in stalemate and gridlock and a sense of deep rancor that replaces what should be recognition that human beings who come together to form a community represent very different points of view. And the act of living in that community and participating in what it has to offer, that is in many ways founded upon a willingness to reach out to and attempt to find and explore common ground to respect those whose point of view differs from one's own. A lot of environmentalists consider themselves to be dam busters and and I think all of us as environmentalists also have to be realists and, and have to learn about compromise. I'm obviously not a big fan of Glen Canyon Dam, but that doesn't mean I'm opposed to all dams. There's reservoirs up here in Utah that I like to go recreate on. And I think that it's important that people see the value in that and realize that you don't need to be against all dams to be a river restoration advocate. I think it's really taking a look at the dams that aren't worth it anymore. Because considering multiple perspectives is so important, as just discussed, we have to acknowledge the fact that there are people who do not want Lake Powell drained or Glen Canyon Dam to come down in any reality or scenario because they have developed a connection to the lake. Is it fair to want these people to give up the landscape they have become attached to? What will happen to these people if the reservoir is ever drained? Since the reservoir has been in place for over 50 years, wouldn't the people who recreate on the reservoir lose a key piece of their identity if the reservoir goes away? Kevin and Eric speak to this. If Glen Canyon Dam were decommissioned, if Lake Powell were drained, everyone who feels an affinity for the beauty of Lake Powell would lose that landscape. They would lose a place to which they've developed a, a deep connection. But the place that they love would be replaced by something else. And the act of replacing it would also represent in some ways a return, a return to what was there before, 
a return to a place that was that was sacrificed on the altar of technology and river accounting that served as justification for building the dam of the reservoir in the first place. Lake Powell is a recreation destination and millions of people do go there for reservoir recreation. And I have to say, because I grew up in Utah and a lot of my friends and family go to Lake Powell and I totally get the appeal. As far as reservoirs go, it's probably one of the most beautiful reservoirs in the world because it's in one of the most beautiful canyons in the world. So it would represent an enormous trade-off. The loss of one environment and the beauty that's attached to it and a return to another place that we thought had disappeared forever. It is this will and yearning to return to a place that we thought we had lost forever, combined with the political realities and attachments to reconstructing a paradise that make the discussion surrounding Glen Canyon Dam so incredibly contentious. But we have to have these conversations. Undoubtedly, the strong emotions surrounding Lake Powell, both positive and negative, and the will to bring the canyon it submerges back, hinge around a fundamental question. The question I asked myself four months ago as I looked out at the Grand Canyon from the South Rim, considering the hulking cement edifice. Have humans asserted dominance over the Colorado River? I mean, when you look at what we've done to the Colorado River today, when you look at the number of dams that we've erected on the mainstream Colorado itself, as well as its tributaries, when you look at the number of reclamation and development projects that are directly tied to those dams, and most compellingly, I think, when you look at the simple fact that this river no longer reaches the sea, that it simply peters out in the desert miles before ever reaching the Sea of Cortez, it's hard not to conclude that human beings have achieved full dominance over the Colorado. I think, however, that that's a kind of a dangerous conclusion to draw. As I sat looking out at the canyon, fearing that a river had been ruined, the fundamental truth of the canyon and the Colorado River spoke to me, and its timelessness answered this question. Humans do not have power over the Colorado River. We may have control for the time being, but that is all. The unifying factor no one can deny, whether they love Lake Powell or want it drained, is that no dam can exist forever. Upon this thought, I exhaled with relief, broke out my pocket journal, legs still slung over the ledge with nothing but thousands of feet of air below, and I wrote, How naive to think that humankind has killed a river and inhibited the sculpting of rock. The dam cannot win over the river forever. Whether we decide to take the dam down or not, it will eventually crumble. Concrete fails and extinctions occur, but water flows on. The canyon has formed over hundreds of millions of years. Humanity's creations will inevitably wane in a relative second of time. I mean, the dams that we've erected in the Colorado River, they're so huge, they're so impressive, that they look absolutely permanent. They look like they will last as long as the granite and the sandstone cliffs that anchor them into the canyon itself. And, and that really is an illusion. Those dams are temporary affairs. And interestingly, we've seen this happen many, many times in the Colorado River. Deep inside Grand Canyon, in the western part of the canyon, there were a series of massive volcanic dams that were created millions of years ago. Reservoirs behind those dams backed up 
a distance that's estimated to have been twice as long as Lake Powell backs up today. And each and every one of those dams, the river ultimately overcame and destroyed. And that's exactly what's going to happen eventually to the dams that we've built. We cannot have power over a river. Perhaps for a time being, we can maintain the illusion that we do. And for a fraction of a second, we might. But we do not have ultimate power over it. Rivers have seen us come, and they will inevitably see us go. And when this time comes, they will go on as they always have, steady, persistent, and powerful. In recognizing our control as a brand of hubris, I find relief. In the grand scheme of things, my species has little power over time, and in this, I find a strange sort of hope. Nature in general, rivers specifically, have demonstrated over time that the idea that human beings enjoy dominion over forces beyond their control is largely a delusion. The reservoirs backed up behind every dam along the Colorado are filling up with silt, and there will come a day when all of these dams no longer exist. The Colorado River will, will fill the reservoirs with silt to the point where the river eventually creates a waterfall that flows over the parapet of each of these dams and that will then begin dismantling the structures. And this is all the more reason to protect rivers from the encroaching threats of humanity in the capacity that we can. Eventually, the dam will come down. And this notion signals an opportunity in the present to be prepared for the moment when it must come down, through a balance of conservation, restoration, collaboration, and most importantly, your participation. Thank you for listening to We Are Rivers, a podcast series brought to you by American Rivers. We Are Rivers is now available on both iTunes and Stitcher. Subscribe to stay up to date with new episodes. And if you find We Are Rivers educational, interesting, or inspiring, please take a moment to rate and comment. This helps others discover the series too, and we appreciate your support.